Hello and welcome to episode 73 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people that create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Uh, I want to mention the Closure West Opportunity Grants applications are open. So this is a program uh, where we gather support for community members, meaning Closure community members, who would not otherwise be able to attend the conference for financial reasons. And these grants are intended for traditionally underrepresented groups in technology. And you can find out more about the definition of, uh, of, of what the, that means at the, the webpage, which is closurewest.org slash opportunity. Uh, we are still accepting applications until February 27th. So you can go by there until then. This is 2015, of course. Um, check, check out the criteria, check out the accept uh, submission process. Um, and if you would like to help out by donating to support the grants, which um, would be wonderful of you, um, you can do that at the Closure West registration page. So please consider uh, either um, donating to support or applying if, uh, if, if that's something that would benefit you. Or um, at the very minimum, uh, spread the word. Uh, people might not be aware that this is a thing that we have available that uh, help people go that might not otherwise be able to. So um, these next few events I want to mention are uh, you probably if you listen to the show, you've heard us do this before. These are events that aren't... Um, affiliated with Cognitech at all. These are other people in the Closure community doing things and we're happy to mention them. Um, to make clear, A, that they're not affiliated, just so you know we don't try to take credit for something that's not our doing. But also want to mention that if you have an event that you would like us to mention here at the beginning of the show, uh, you can email Kim, our producer, at podcast at Cognitech.com. I'm not going to make any promises that we'll mention everything we get word on, but certainly <laughs> if you email us, you make it easier for us to know about you, which is not going to hurt your chances. So if you like, um, would like to email us again, that's podcast at Cognitech.com. All right, so a few events coming up in the near future. Um, Closure Vienna, uh, which you can find at meetup.com slash closure dash Vienna, is hosting a Closure Coding Dojo, and that's on March 3rd. Um, the Austin Closure Bridge uh, session will be running from March 13th to 14th. Uh, the Closure Toronto Meetup Group is meeting Tuesday, February 17th, which I believe is the day that this comes out. So... <laughs> <laughs> if you're hearing this on Tuesday, February 17th, you know, make sure you get yourself over to that. Uh, sorry for the late notice. Um, there's a Closure Delphia hack night, which I have to assume is in Philadelphia. Um, that's on Wednesday, February 25th. All of these are very, very easy to find, I'm sure, by searching the web, which um, I'm sure you know how to do. Um, but those, uh, you know, are all good things. I think I'd like to especially point out the Austin Closure Bridge. We've talked about Closure Bridge on the program before. Uh, it's a really interesting program. Um, so uh, check that one out. But they all seem great. I love meetups. It's really fun for me to go to the ones around here and uh, hang out with other closureians, closuristas, whatever we call ourselves. So um, I think that's all I got for you. So we will go on to episode 73 of the Cognicast. What do you say we kick this thing off? Ready to go. All right, great. Well, welcome, everybody. Today is Thursday, January 22nd in 2015, and this is the Cognicast. And I am extremely pleased to welcome to the show today uh, Michael Drogalis. How are you doing, Mike? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, well, actually, it's our pleasure. I mean, uh, you were, your name was on the short list of people. Oh, we really got to talk to him. He's been doing interesting things lately. I want to kick you off with the question that I uh, warned you about, uh, which is our, our tradition here at the show, <laughs> to start off with uh, a question of, oh, it's not really a question, maybe a story. I don't know, you, for you to relate some experience of art that you have had, whether that's art that you created, a book you've read, a movie you've seen, just some some piece of art that was in some way significant to you. I wonder if you could uh, share something with us. Sure. So I guess it was about two years ago now. Uh, I picked up a book by an author named Robert Greene called Mastery. And Robert Greene had spent the last, uh, I think, five to ten years, he said, looking at various people across different fields who are at the top of their performance, who all of their peers regarded as the best. 
And what he was trying to do was figure out what are the things that make these people the most creative and why are they so productive in whatever they do. So I came across a passage in this book where he describes the English poet John Keats and uh, essentially he, he outlines his story as John Keats being a younger guy saying, you know, I don't really know what to do with my life yet, but I really like reading and writing and literature seems to be something that resonates with me really well. But I don't know if I could really put my foot in the ground and make a living out of this. So John Keats put himself to a challenge and he said, I'm going to write a 4,000 line poem in an impossible deadline of about seven months. And that's, that's extremely fast to write something of that nature. Uh, and so, you know, Keats goes about writing this and he gets maybe halfway through and, and the book starts to talk about how this poem just started to absolutely suck. Uh, it had bugs in it. It had, it had rot, so to speak, that, you know, we would think about. But the, the artistic thing for me was that he, he forced himself to keep going. And it wasn't just like a mind over matter thing, like I'm tough, I can do this. He was training himself to be able to create very, very quickly, even when it was uncomfortable, and to revise very, very fast on the spot. And I think you know, ever since I read that, I've kind of kept that with me in, in the way that I work with programming, to be able to create quickly and then to revise whatever I have, good or not, and just keep moving forward and, and to make my ideas reality. Hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, uh, I, I mean, I've been of the opinion over the last few years that programming really is a creative act. I mean, it, there's this long debate that I don't really have an opinion on. Like, is it is it craft? Is it a science? Whatever. Yeah. I don't care what you call it, but it definitely is a creative act in the same way. That I think that something like or, or a a a way that's somehow similar to something like making a poem is. That's cool. That's super cool. It's, it's a fusion that no one can really put their finger on, it seems. Yeah. Some of that whole unconscious, um, conscious mind thing going on somewhere. Yep. Well, speaking of creating, you have definitely done quite a bit. You know, you've, you're the author of several interesting libraries. The one I think maybe we could start with is the one that's kind of at the, the most recent thing I, I've seen from you anyway, which is a little thing called Onyx. <laughs> sure. Uh, I wonder if you could explain to our listeners what that is, and then we can drill down on some of the details. Definitely. Um, so at a high level, Onyx aims to be a distributed computation platform, and it's focused on providing a batch and streaming unified interface. So you can think of things like uh, Hadoop MapReduce and Apache Storm all in one. Uh, it tends to leverage the streaming side a little bit more, but its superpower is that it's really, really good at uh, using data structures to craft your computations so that you can go in remote languages on different machines and different ecosystems across different timelines and create these computations and then send them all the way over to nodes in your cluster and have them execute at scale. Yeah, so I actually somewhat coincidentally, uh, not entirely, but somewhat coincidentally spent most of yesterday looking at Onyx as a candidate technology for something I'm doing for work. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it, and so maybe <laughs> we, can, we can maybe use that use case to, to drill down on some of the things later and I can squeeze some free consulting out of you. Yay. Um, oh, I'd be happy to. Cool. Anyway, so, but one of the things that struck me what you said just now was you said it unifies batch and streaming and that is something that you emphasize um, as a value proposition in your documentation. But I have to admit that, that that distinction is not a super razor sharp one in my mind. Could you, no. uh, like, what is the difference? Like, what, what's the important distinction there, and why is it important that it be unified? So, uh, are you familiar with, uh, I guess I should explain anyway. So, I was reading about maybe two and a half years ago, Nathan Marsh started cooking up this pattern called the, the Lambda architecture. Mm -hmm. And he tried to make a way to unify batch and real-time processing into, into one layer, um, to make more robust fault-tolerant systems so that you can go back and replay real-time computations that had bugs in them. You Suppose you have an aggregation function that's uh, summing events as they come along and you have a bug, you need to go back and replay it so that you can do it again without throwing off your counters. He's essentially trying to, to hide it behind a single interface, and most frameworks that exist right now aren't really capable of that. Uh, there's been some effort from uh, Sam Ritchie with something called Summingbird and the effort around there is to basically take something that's agnostic to all frameworks and then compile it down directly into target native frameworks. But to do it all in one framework is sort of a new thing. And there are certainly trade-offs for how far you can go in either direction. But if you can achieve that, like I said, you can do these new patterns that uh, are a little bit more fault-tolerant than what we had before and have less stress on the application developer. So now is that, so like I'm a closure programmer for quite a while now, so sometimes I wonder whether I have a bit of a skewed perspective. Right. So, so my, my question is, is the, the friction there, historical friction anyway, 
between batch and real-time systems just about making time explicit instead of implicit? Do you know what I mean? For the hurt that I've experienced most, I think I could kind of sum this up in, in one little story, is that I haven't been able to provide a mechanism to do sorting, for example, because if you're going to say that this framework does both batch and streaming, you can't sort a stream because a stream is a theoretically infinite sequence of data. And if you don't know that you're dealing with a batch uh, until you've already started your job, there has to be some underlying functionality to drop data to disk and incrementally sort it to have good performance characteristics. And those are the sort of source spots that I've run into where you don't know ahead of time what you're going to be dealing with and you have to have different mechanisms for dealing with data that are more efficient for one case over the other. Mm. Okay, so now with Onyx then, you said you've tried to unify, but I, I think, well, maybe I'm putting words into your mouth, but is it that you've tried to unify in terms of how you work with the system? I mean, you're not trying to provide sorting over an infinite stream. No, of course not. Yeah. Um, I, th I think it's more in terms of the interface that it provides to you. So if you go ahead and you look at the interface that, for example, Cascading provides, which is an abstraction over Hadoop MapReduce, it's much more geared towards working with things as a collection. And then you can contrast that with how uh, Storm is exposing itself to you as the application developer, which is as a DAG, a directed acyclic graph. And I think I've done an okay job at pulling in the, the functional construction back into the, the DAG analogy in such a way that you get most of the benefits as a batch processor, but you're primarily sitting as a stream processor. So I try to get as much of the batch world as I can without having to sacrifice the primary goal, which is being a storm competitor. So if there would be the case, for example, that you, you might know that you're sorting and, and, and you can write code that's really, really similar, maybe even reuse some of the bits that you've used in some of your stream processing, but then you've got a, you've got a process that you know is a batch process, but you could just leverage a lot of the same metaphors and the, the thing that you emphasize at the information model and not have to make huge changes for what's logically not a huge change. Is that, is that a yeah, fair that's, summary? Yeah, that's exactly the idea. Okay, gotcha. That makes a lot of sense to me. Oh, I wonder if I could rewind a little bit, though, because, again, like I have the benefit on some of our listeners of having just spent a few hours yesterday immersed in the docs. So <laughs> I'll ask a, a simpler question, perhaps, which is, um, so what, what is Onyx? Like, if I, if I download it and install it, I've, I've now got what? I mean, it's a dessert <laughs> tapping, it's a floor wax, like it's a jar, it's a, you know what I mean? Like, what, what do I wind up with when I, when I go out and visit the Onyx uh, website and, and, and get started? Technically, you have a library that is a jar of flow jars. Now, saying that I have a library, which is a fairly large system, will obviously make some people upset. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm mostly inclined to be able to say that it's a framework. But, but you are able to include it in your project in line again, just as if it were another library. You set up some framework-like constructs similar to Stuart Sierra's component, and you're off and running in a, in a local mode if you want, or you can get it up into AWS pretty quickly. Um, but the idea is you're just getting a jar down. There's no large installation that's coming along. You don't have to install binaries by yourself or anything like that. Okay. And so then my next step would be, so I, you know, I add a reference and I've, I've, I fire up a REPL and now here's Onyx in my, in my process, or at least the code is in my, is in my you know, REPL process. What's, what, what's next? What do I do as an Onyx developer? So the beautiful part, in my opinion, is that you actually don't need Onyx to do the next part. You start envisioning the computation that you want in terms of a data structure. And we often find this helpful to be done in terms of a tree or a graph. And the graph representation in Onyx is just a vector of vectors or a map. So that doesn't involve the Onyx API at all whatsoever. So you can go and you know, draw your graph out on paper and then port it into a vector of vectors, which is the canonical workflow in, in Onyx. And after you've done that, you decide what each node in your graph means. So you go ahead and start constructing what we call the catalog. And the catalog is a vector of maps very similar to a datomic schema, where you're adding specific attributes or qualities to every node in the graph saying, this is what this node is named, this is the function that it refers to, maybe it performs aggregation or it has specific grouping properties or anything like that. So it's highly focused around creating data structures to have your next step in creating your distributed system. Okay, so that makes, I mean, I like the analogy, the datomic schema. I mean, I work with datomic and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to think of it that way. You know, you've got this, as you say, this directed acyclic graph, and really all you're doing is attaching data to each node, but it's oriented towards computation. So one of the important bits is 
what does the node do in, a, in essence, right? What's the function associated with it? Correct. And as it turns out, that pattern of attaching tags or, or however you want to call it to, to anything really, it ends up being a really strong pattern. I've used that in other projects. But to circle back and answer your question, so in, the, in those tags inside the catalog, you, you end up referring as a keyword to an actual closure function that needs to exist within its jar of execution. So all we're doing is using Clojure's machinery uh, to resolve the function from a keyword at runtime and just go figure out what that means and then pass it uh, Clojure map, which is the unit of data inside of Onyx. So there's, there's nothing, you know, there's no scary serialization happening. There are no interfaces to be followed that you as a user have to explicitly understand. Uh, all you need to create are functions, closure, normal functions that take maps and return maps. Yeah, and, and you've, you've been careful to emphasize that this is a closure-oriented uh, system, although you also talk about the fact that, that the descriptions themselves are, are language agnostic. What, what's the, like, I, I guess I, I have a little bit of a hard time separating those two statements in my head, although I think I can kind of see how they make sense. I definitely struggle with that a lot, because in one hand, you're, you're crafting the structure of your computation and its semantic meaning as, can, you can think of it as JSON. You're, you're over in uh, Ruby, and you want to say that this computation is going to have these nodes, and these two inputs are going to be flowing to this transformer, and then they're going to go to these different outputs. And that can all be done in data. You're not saying how things are going to be changed, or how I'm going to absorb data from my SQL, and then push it into a Dynamo cluster or anything like that. So, so in that, that sense, that's all fine happening in other languages. Uh, the part that I struggle with is, how are we going to be able to move towards alternate implementations beyond closure from the functions that you're naming? Because inside the catalog, you do have to name actual closure functions. Now, we can fall back on things like JRuby um, and, and other language implementations that happen to be on the JVM. It's kind of a second-class thing to do, but at the moment, I don't really have a better solution. So you, you sort of be, are able to take the structural properties of your distributed program, and then move them out of closure. Not everyone wants to be there, I understand that. But when it comes to actually getting high-performance uh, computing power, for the moment, you need to stay in closure and create those normal closure functions and not go out and try to resolve something in a totally other ecosystem. Sure, yeah, that makes sense to me, and I'm lucky that I'm able to work <laughs> in closure <laughs> for everything I do. Um, which actually, I maybe want to talk to you a little bit about the, the problem I'm solving, because I think that'll, that'll help uh, me understand Onyx a little bit better and maybe make it concrete for some people, myself included, who prefer to think in, uh, in concretions at times. Um, sure. So the problem I'm trying to solve is a pretty common one, image processing, right? So we have a pile of URLs that we get from someplace, and then we want to take them and do the typical web thing where we resize them and crop mm -hmm. them and then dump them in you know, an S3 bucket somewhere. Now on the surface, that sounds like a really good fit for something like Onyx or really any kind of you know distributed computation you know, batch system really, because it is batch. I mean, we're not getting an endless stream of images. Right. Does that, so is there anything about that problem that you think is especially well suited or poorly suited for Onyx, or does that sound like a typical type of thing? Onyx's primary strength comes when you don't know the structure of your computation at compile time. So as a programmer, if you can sit down and understand what exactly this um, workflow needs to look like, Onyx is a little bit less of a win for you. You can probably fall back on a more mature framework. But if you don't know what these things are going to look like, uh, if they're going to be created by users, if they're going to be created by other programs, Onyx is, in my opinion, one of the only frameworks around that's able to gracefully do that without you know, falling back on macros or uh, runtime programmatic instruction, which eventually ends in something like an eval call. But it, it was geared towards being able to do the, the kinds of programs that you described. Take, take a set of medium to small size uh, inputs and then pass them around and being able to communicate with things like S3 without really any uh, user-level intervention. So, uh, right, so you mentioned that that's a good uh, distinction to make is the dynamic aspect. And actually, that's one of the things I've been playing with in this particular system is, you know, we're, we're taking a big image and making it into thumbnails of various sizes. Mm -hmm. And the question I had, at the moment, they have a system that does this, and uh, this, the sizes that are output are, are kind of, they're hard-coded, essentially, in the in the bit that does the processing, which is a single like monolithic application that runs on one machine and and we're hoping to move to something that can uh, run an auto scaling group where we can get the size of the scaling group to go up and down as, as conditions warrant. But it occurred to me when I was looking at this is there's this bit that knows how to resize images, but really it's kind of a business logic as in terms of, and I, should, I shouldn't just say resize, it's actually resizing and some filtering and stuff that's going on. And the things that happen are really potentially driven by 
decisions that I don't think that batch processing piece should really own. So, I, I mean, I, I could actually see Onyx maybe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, being a good fit in that we could compose dynamically a set of steps that need to happen to an image. You know, well, this for these, we want to resize them to 100 by 200 and to 300 by 200. And for these other ones, we want to resize them to a different set. And these should get blurred before resizing, and these shouldn't, right? All that business type of logic could be part of the... The, the input to the system, if you will, and it could take the form of perhaps an Onyx, I forget the term you use for it, a workflow, like a, a set of yep. steps. Does that, does that make any sense at all or is that not the type of thing you're talking about? Yeah, you absolutely nailed it. And a lot of the parameterization, if it can be expressed as a value that can be serialized to Eden or Freshen and read back off of disk, can happen through the catalog. And, and that's where you start to be able to really leverage the reasons that I built this because you can take the catalog and then use it to automatically create user interfaces, do some level of schema-like type checking or any kind of like user-level validation just by looking at this one data structure. Because Onyx knows how to take that datomic-like schema and then inject those values directly into your computation. It's really hard to do this with a lot of other frameworks. And I, I think the reason is that because the structural properties of what you're trying to do are often baked directly into the client-facing API. And that ends up being really, really tough to work with as an application developer. Yeah, I mean, I guess unless you know for sure that you're always changing it to 800 by 600 images, to use my example, <laughs> then, but like yeah. you said, that's not really the use case that you're optimized for. And, and it rarely is. I see this again and again and again. I, I consulted for about a year building distributed systems and how to create these kinds of things. And it's still very much a dark art how you bend a lot of frameworks to be able to do this without spending a huge amounts of development time. Hmm. Okay, um, so one of the other aspects that I wanted to ask you about, this is great. <laughs> Solve all my problems, Mike. Um, this is great. So the, one of the other things I was curious about was like the, the way that c computation actually happens. You know what I mean? So like I have these steps, um, and let's just keep it simple. Let's say there's two steps. Well, yep. maybe, maybe there's actually four, because the first one is, a URL arrives in my Onyx cluster. And the first thing I have to do is download it. And then the next thing I want to do is resize it. And then let's say the one more thing I want to do to it is to apply some sort of filter to it. Let's, whatever, you know, like colorize, adjust the contrast, let's just say. And then the last thing would be to upload it to S3. So I've got this workflow, it's pretty linear in this example, but you know, you, you've got these, um, well actually it's not when I think about it because when I resize it, I might resize it to like four different sizes. So then you've almost got this thing that kind of, the steps are, are linear in the sense that, re, you know, downloading comes first, then resizing, and then... Um, then you have this branching sort of thing going on, and the, the, the outputs might go to four different places. Right. Yeah. So I guess my question is about, like, what happens? I mean, take, take me through, in this imaginary workflow, like, I've got this client program out here, and it says, oh, I just discovered this URL. I'm going to hurl it into the ether and it's going to land in this in this somewhere like this cluster that's going to receive it and say okay now it's time to start doing the work that onyx is orchestrating so maybe you could walk me through if you can how that would kind of flow through sure and, and feel free to interrupt me if any of this doesn't make sense okay so i think the first thing to note is that deployment in onyx is a la carte so I, this is one of the really critical things that i took a risk on and it's starting to pay off quite a bit in my opinion so when you, you create these kinds of jobs, you have to at some point specify the closure functions that are going to carry out your computations. And those are really simple things. They're like string split or uh, some sort of a mapping function. It doesn't involve Onyx whatsoever. It's just operating on from, as a function from a map to another map. And as you install these things on your jar, you have to go out by yourself and take this jar and put it out on the nodes in your cluster. And the reason that I did this, in contrast to other frameworks like Hadoop and Storm, which will automatically take your jar and distribute it across the cluster, is because I think in the last five to ten years, tools like Ansible and Puppet and Chef have come such a long way that it's actually going to be a lot more convenient that you as the development team take care of managing how you're going to take your jar and then move it out across um, your new nodes. You inevitably have to write some scripting code anyway, which often ends up looking like shell. Um, so you might as well bump yourself up to higher level tools and just manage that on your own time. Um, so now that you've taken your, your jar and you've deployed it across the cluster, uh, Onyx can now start taking keywords that refer to functions and resolve them to actual meaningful computations. So what you do is you go ahead and say, all right, Onyx, listen up. 
I'm sending you off a workflow and a catalog, and you should know what to do with this. And I have to draw this distinction now. We had a release a couple of days ago that have changed a few things in terms of coordination, but I'll explain the way that messaging works presently, uh, and later I'll explain the way that messaging will work uh, upon the next release, which is going to change rather drastically. So at the moment, Onyx actually walks your DAG workflow and looks for all the links and says, all right, I'm going to take every edge in between nodes and create an actual Hornet queue queue. Hornet queue is, is a queuing server from the JBoss stack, extremely highly performant, and for what I know, it is used within a Datomics transactor mm-hmm. to get really fast writes. And it essentially walks that graph and creates queues between all the edges and starts the input nodes in your graph listening to any externally facing services like Kafka or you could even bootstrap something like MySQL. So it will start flowing in those segments, we call them as, as your little inputs, and they start flowing down through Hornet queue. And Onyx's coordination mechanism essentially works to take, we call them peers rather than actual nodes because they, they might not be physical, to distribute your peers across the tasks in your job and evenly situate them in such a way that you're, you're going to have a balanced and performant execution. And so messaging is essentially happening by communicating through Hornet queue. So I, I offloaded quite a bit of the work onto a third-party vendor. And that worked perfectly for getting ready for Strange Loop when I, when I released it because <laughs> the amount of work it takes to get that right is, is just absolutely staggering. Conference-driven um, de- development for the win, right? Oh, if you want to get something done, set yourself a deadline at a conference. You'll, you'll work like no tomorrow, and you really will get the thing done. <laughs> but be warned, it is a lot of stress. So yeah, so to, to answer your question very quickly, now that I've kind of summarized it, uh, we're using Hornet Q to route messages. Now that being said, in about two to three months, we're actually going to tear all of that out and go with an HTTP-based solution. And we're more or less going to copy exactly what Storm does. And the reason being that, I, well, I say Storm has a lot of flaws, I have a ton of respect for what Nathan Mars has done in terms of the algorithms for doing this, this very specific uh, in-memory XOR implementation to get highly performant messaging. I've been able to push a Storm cluster easily past a million messages per second with a very small cluster. And I don't think there's really any harm from copying what he's done. That's what open source is for. Mm. Uh, so uh, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I guess the question, maybe you're going to get to this in a second. I don't want to step on your toes, but one of the things that comes to my mind when I hear that messages are routed through a queue is, you know, and I have, um, me- I'm saying messages, I think you call them segments. They're, sure, they're, they're interchangeable. Based, right, so they're maps, right? Yep. So one of the things that I might do if I were writing this image processing thing myself would be to route between the steps with an in-memory representation. In other words, something that's not, that I don't want to serialize, right? Because I resize the image. I don't want to save it out to disk or to the network just so that I can then apply a filter to it. I've already got it in memory. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, but is that like what's happening between, is there messaging going on between the steps in a DAG necessarily? There tends not to be no, and I haven't really explored a use case where you could do that yet. But I've definitely come across problems where you have a message so big, like an image, there's no way that you're going to want to package that up into Freshen and then put that on Hornet queue and ship that off to the next node. More often, you might want to put the intermediate steps on something faster, like S3, and then send a message like, oh, hey, you can go find uh, the next step over here. But in terms of actually rerouting messages for peers to talk to themselves again, uh, it has no support for that quite yet. Okay. I mean, you know, because in this particular case, you could always do something like, say, I mean, the computation that I'm talking about is, is um, although it may vary from URL to URL, it's fixed for a URL. So as long as you can parameterize the computation, which I, I'm almost positive you can, then you could say, well, the overall thing is to resize and then to, and then to filter. And here are the parameters that go around that. And that's one step. And you would still get the, um, I think. Oh, I see. Yeah, see yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, it, but, it's fun to watch other people take the, the constructs that I've imagined and then apply them in ways that <laughs> I really honestly never thought of. And, right. and it's just it's the coolest thing. But, but that makes sense, right? Like you would just you would collapse the DAG down to fewer to fewer um, fewer nodes. nodes. And it, it reminds me of like transducers taking mm. a set of disparate steps and then prefusing them and then going ahead and running them on your program with you know no user level interaction about having to do that. Well, right, but that you're not saying that, that that Onyx does anything like what Transducers does does the fusion. That would be no, on no, me no. to produce that fusion. No, and in fact, I'm pretty sure that you, you could pull that into something like an intermediate library where you have like a catalog and say, all right, 
here are steps A, B, and C. Mm. Please prefuse these before you submit them out to the cluster for execution. Sure, or even operate on, I mean, I imagine you could use the, the language that describes the DAG as, as something you could hand off to a little library that you wrote that would actually just like do straight function calls and not do any of the fancy routing, like for some subset of the graph, if you see what I'm saying. So I could still oh, describe precisely. my computation, computation but, not, but not leverage Onyx except at the edges of some subgraph. Right. That's actually been suggested to me before. I haven't really had time to explore it, but I know that there are a lot of other frameworks out there that will default to this in-memory mode. If they can do it faster locally, they'll just go ahead and, and do that. And I think the reason that, that I think that Onyx is a good idea is because it doesn't provide a new abstraction. It's just using data structures, which is an existing abstraction and has existed for a really long time across different languages. And that's why you can reimagine all these ways to take what I call a workflow and to completely change what that means such that you end up at you know, still having a valid workflow because you're using data structures as your intermediate language to go from your idea back to mine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had a couple uh, small ideas myself where I've taken something that was um, computation and, and uh, turned it into um, data and seen huge wins. Uh, it's always fun when you kind of discover that, although I think you've gone big compared to the stuff I've done. <laughs> Um, so that actually maybe uh, is a good segue. Uh, you can tell me if it is, but it seems like a good segue yeah. to talking about what you have planned because it sounds like you've got even more exciting things in mind for down the road. Definitely. So one of the things you know, that I've already discussed is um, the 060 release, which is going to be an HTTP-based solution. Uh, and one of the things we're looking at is maybe rather than using something like HTTP Kit or Netty, could we use this new framework called Aeron, which was also introduced at Strangeloop that claims to have extremely good performance with tiny, tiny messages that will strain its system up to, I, I can't remember what was quoted, it was easily into the millions of messages per second territory. So we're looking at giving that a shot. And the other, the other area that I really want to make some groundbreaking progress in is, you know, how, can I, how can I use Onyx to solve the problems that I've been struggling with for the last year and a half? I, I built this for a reason because I was suffering from you know, trying to create these analytics products at scale that needed to be parameterized at runtime, how can I go back and take what I've made and get about as close to plug-and-play analytics as possible? I don't know if you recall Stephen Wolfram's keynote at Strangeloop. That very much inspired me. He essentially demoed, how would you describe it? It's almost like a REPL for mm -hmm. entity-based processing. So you say, like, I wanted to talk about the Eiffel Tower, and you, you chain these computations together using a very, you know, non-developer-friendly language, and you're able to compose all these things at runtime. And I want to see, can you take that same idea and apply it to medium to large size data sets? So kind of like Wolfram Alpha, but against raw data. Can you get really close to plug and play such that you just say, here's my data set, and maybe here's a couple of extra computations in, in addition to what already exists. Can that just work? And, and that's one of the areas that I'm going to be spending a lot of time in soon. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah, and, and uh, you reminded me, I did see Wolfram's keynote. It was, it, was, it was interesting. One of the things that was pointed out to me that I hadn't realized, because I haven't spent a lot of time in uh, Mathematica, is that, and I don't know whether this was true still of, of uh, the Wolfram language. I think it is. But certainly the Mathematica language actually uh, does make use of S expressions. So it is in some sense a lisp. <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. And I, I can't prove that, but it was asserted to me by somebody I trust. So um, it's an interesting, interesting statement. What you you see these things that you would draw a, a conclusion like that uh, from a, a environment that shares some of the properties of the ones that you you've implemented Onyx in. Right, and yeah, I was sitting there the whole time, just cooking up ideas in my head as he was going. The crowd was just kind of ooing and aahing, and I was thinking, oh, I could do this in a really cool way. Can't wait to go back and try it. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Um, so now I heard you say a couple times we in reference to the implementation of Onyx. Are you working with other people, or is that just the open source royal we? <laughs> a little bit of both. Okay. Um, so I, for a year, it was it was just me trying to cook up this product. But recently, I've been working with um, a friend uh, named Lucas Bradstreet, and and we've been collaborating on uh, the new messaging design. And he's been working on some very interesting things around deployment. While deployment is a la carte, there are some really interesting scenarios with the new design, which is like a log structure, so you can tap into these these notifications whenever something happens in your cluster. Mm -hmm to do things like auto-scaling and uh, notifications when nodes in your cluster are going down or, or job restarting. So he's, he's doing a lot of things around enhancing as a platform 
uh, as a first-class service. So we, we've gone from the royal open-source Wii to an actual Wii, and it, it feels <laughs> awesome to have other people take time out of their day and, and look at something that you've made and say, oh, I want to help with that. It's a really big inspiration to keep going. That's super cool. I've been quite impressed by the, um, you know, I, I, I have been looking at Onyx for all of a, a day, at least seriously. I, I watched your presentation, which was great. Definitely recommend people check your Strange Loop presentation out. Um, the documentation on the on the project site is is really quite good for a project in the phase of its life cycle where, where Onyx is, which is <laughs> really early. It's really quite good. Um, Thank you, you. Congratulate on that. And yeah, that's neat that you're, that you're finding affection, traction, however you want to put it in the, in the world. That's always a nice validation. Certainly. So I, I maybe I, maybe we get sidetracked from. I don't know if there were other things that are in the future of Onyx that you're ready to talk about. That's about as far as I can look ahead. Yeah, uh, I understand. The, the work on the core framework takes so much of my time right now, more than I really want to admit. But just over the horizon is looking into plug and play analytics, faster messaging, and uh, making it a, making a platform around it so that other people can get their hands on it really quickly. I think the. Well, the documentation, I think, is you know, pretty good in my opinion. I've put a lot of work into it. It's missing this almost prose-like description to take you from beginning to end how you can make your own distributed program on AWS and just kind of talk you through what's going on and you know, not feel as much like a reference manual. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, I, I, I don't mean this as criticism. I, I agree, but I think it's, it's a fascinating statement because I've long thought that there are you know, at least two types of documentation needed. And one is the the reference. And I think like the closure.org site is an excellent example of this where, you know, anything you want to know about closure is there. You you might need to know where to look for it or you might need to spend some time reading everything and then discover, but it's it's there. I'm not saying the docs are perfect, but I think they're really good from that perspective of like uh, here. I concur, certainly. Yeah, right. And but then I think, but I think there there absolutely is that need for prose as well. Like the storytelling, I think, you know, human beings are kind of wired to relate in terms of stories, right? I mean, this is what I was talking about. Like, I, I sometimes I need an example. Sometimes I need to say, "Oh, well, what if we use pictures? How does that work?" Um, or images, right? So, um, so yeah, I think that's that's a really good idea. I'm, I'm not trying to say anything along the lines of, "Dude, why isn't that done yet?" I mean, the undertaking is, is <laughs> I think enormous. We're we want to write a book. That's that's what's happening right yeah, now. Yeah, well, you know, that's one form of prose. Certainly, um, it's not the only <laughs> kind. Your presentation is another. Um, you know, pres- good presentations, which I think yours was, are also a, a type of storytelling, right? It has a beginning, a middle, and end, and kind of a rhythm to it. Anyway, sorry, I used to do be a, I used to do training, and so I, I get a little bit into the um, the word I'm looking for, pedagogical. Is that the right word? Yeah, pedagogical so, yeah. stuff. This now. weird thing is happening as I write more documentation. I find myself liking it because people understand what's going on, so I want to do more of it. <laughs> and uh, look in the mirror, what's happening to me? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, my friend Timmy Wald always says. I reserve the right to get smarter. So just just use it, say it that way. 10x communicator. There you go. So you, uh, I, I should say, by the way, before I forget to do this, to congratulate you, you've recently taken a new job. Yeah, I have. Thank you so much. And you're, um, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, my, my career is actually rather short. I, I finished school a little bit more than a year and a half ago. I took a job at an analytics startup, bounced over to doing uh, independent consulting, and now I'm over at Biasat building cloud infrastructure with the Lona Cloud team to support satellite communications. Yeah, it's a great team. You've, um, it's a really, it's just, you know, there's, it's so, it's so gratifying to me to see how many like excellent teams are out there. I mean, I could, I could name a whole bunch of stuff at the top of my head, you know, but Lona Cloud is definitely one of them. And it's just really, really cool to see those places where you could sit. When I started doing Clojure five years ago, Wow, you know, really, it was it was relevance at that point, it, and it probably wasn't just relevance. I don't want to say that that was the only place in the world because there are many fine people who have been in closure longer than I have that that never worked there. But from my perspective, as a guy who wanted to go do it, it, it seemed like that was the only place you could go. And now um, I look around and I'm like, well, you know, there's Lona Cloud, there's a, a number of other places uh, like where Kyle Kingsbury, Factual, right? I mean, just you know, just keep the list goes on. It's it's just super cool to see. It's great to see because you know we obviously all really like this language, and I don't know how I would feel if I saw that it was like totally mainstream. Well, it's sort of a good thing for education <laughs> right. and things like that. Right. I do enjoy you know this feeling. Is it's a smaller community and that's nice, but uh, there are many serious players in it now, and every single person on this team that I've recently joined are just toweringly smart. It's yeah. it's awesome to work with them. Yeah, the Lona Cloud guy. Uh, I shouldn't say guys. The Lona Cloud developers are excellent. 
Right. Um, and I know what you mean about kind of, oh, it's so nice right now. The community's, you know, small. We know everybody and it feels like, you know, everybody is, uh, is somebody I would want to work with. But at the same time, of course, we also want there to be growth because that enables certain aspects of the community that we might find positive and, and to, to feel a little bit ambiguous about that, uh, I think is completely understandable. Um, so far, I've, in my opinion, we've been, we've been good about resolving that ambiguity in a way that means it's still uh, welcoming to newcomers. That's, that's my perspective. It was admittedly skewed since I haven't been a newcomer for a while. I do hope that we maintain that, you know what I mean? Because I think it would be possible. It's hard to imagine given like my perception of the community that this would happen, but you could, you could think there's a, uh, some alternate future where, you know, people are like, Oh, I don't want more people in here. <laughs> this is my awesome language and you should all, you know, go write whatever else. Yeah. So, I mean, oh, hopefully that doesn't happen, but yeah, if, if nothing else it, at present, we can get everyone's opinion on feature expressions and make sure everyone's included on that. <laughs> yes. That has been a fascinating discussion. I saw recently that Chaz and I, uh, I think Alan and um, Sasha, Feature Me, sorry, Misha. Why did I say Sasha? Misha. I think it yeah. was Misha. And uh, yeah, the, the right, the alternate uh, suggestion for feature expressions. Very cool stuff. Right. You know, just, I don't know. I, you know, I used to live in the Microsoft world and I, I feel like if those discussions were going on, they were going on in places where I wasn't participating. So it's it right. neat to be it's able to It's all out in the open and there's yeah. lots of implementations and trade-offs to be considered. And yep. uh, it's, it's neat to see everyone taking a stab at it. It yeah. is a difficult problem and everyone suffers from trying to port their code across closure to closure script. So uh, the more minds, the better in my opinion. Yeah. And it, and it is, it's funny to me, like initially, cause I'd done some common lisp. Uh, I, I saw the, uh, the proposal and I'm like, Oh yeah, okay. That makes sense. That's what common lisp has. And then some people started pointing out some of the potential pitfalls around things like tooling. And I was like, Oh wow. Yeah. That actually is kind of a fraught problem, which sometimes makes me glad I'm not a language designer to, to worry <laughs> about stuff like that. You always have to remind yourself that you know you are looking at a particular problem from your perspective, right. and things might make sense, but somebody else who sees something just a little bit different, you know, they may have just valid, just as valid of an opinion approaching a slightly different problem, and then communication on that is a little difficult sometimes. Yeah. So I, I should I want to make sure we take time to talk about some of your other projects. I, I br glanced very briefly at your uh, GitHub. I'm like, oh yeah, right. I I remember this. You know, mostly lately I've been seeing your name associated with Onyx. But I know you have other things that you've been that you've worked on. Is there any uh, like uh, maybe you could remind our listeners of what some of those are? Because they're like, oh yeah, that's the same guy that did that thing. Oh sure. Um, primarily my my other library that seems to be either be loved or hated is called Dire. Um, and it's been described as uh, an alter var root hack. It's been described as monadic. <laughs> it's been described as a cutting edge language, whatever. Um, I'm not sure really whether it's any of those things. But Dyer is all about giving you uh, aspect oriented language extensions um, onto normal closure functions so that you can take just a, you know, a plain old function and say, all right, this is going to be your function, except we're going to wrap this in transparent try catch handlers, in tri transparent pre and post conditions, and things like that. So you are taking, in fact, taking functions and then transparently modifying them into new functions, which is you know kind of a mutation that people feel uh, good or bad about. But it gives you this sort of magic to, to closure that you have to use very very carefully, and that I personally had success with. But then again, you know I'm the library author and I know what's happening and I know what landmines not to step on. Yeah. So when I looked at this, the thing that struck me was that the examples, at least, and it was a very brief glance, so I'm sure it was a naive understanding. Um, it's, it's about as straightforward as it looks when, okay. you, when you see it. So all, all of the stuff in, in Dyer was um, related to working with VARs. Um, now, just now you said functions, is it, and those are two pretty different things. Is, is Dyer coupled to VARs, or, or is, there, is there a functional aspect that's kind of below that? That's much more correct to say that, yeah. It is, it is essentially coupled to the VAR, so you can really take this thing and then pull it over into ClojureScript and still see it working. Well, the, so the only reason I bring it up is because I wanted to get your take on something that I've observed, which is that when people are coming into Clojure, it's very common for those of us that have some understanding of it to say, okay, well, one of the cool things that's cool here is immutability and the idea of pure functions. And then, like, almost immediately, <laughs> we show them Printlin and death, right? And, and those are both side-affecting, right? Like, I mean, Printlin spews output. That one's pretty obvious. But, but def makes a var and you could argue, okay, that's not really mutation in the sense that you have to create an immutable value at some point. 
but but vars are actually a mutation construct. They're right up there with atoms and refs and uh, and agents and things like that. So I wonder if you've ever encountered that dichotomy <laughs> or had any, you know, as a guy who's written a, li- a library that has to do with manipulating vars, uh, if you have any perspective on that. I think Stuart Sierra, I, I believe it was him, I'm quoting him, uh, said it absolutely perfectly. You really shouldn't def anything other than a function or a constant enclosure. And I, I think my mind he's speaking to go ahead and use component to capture side effects and, and start up and shut down behavior. But yeah, the problem that I was trying to solve, and this was long before component existed, was how can you take things like pre and post conditions and logging and error handling and treat them more like how Erlang does supervision, where you have this tree and nodes in the tree can watch other nodes and they can be transparently added and removed. And, and that's kind of the direction it was heading. I, I had written this just after reading uh, Armstrong's paper on air handling. And, and you know, I, I'm not sure whether, I don't use it as, as frequently as I do anymore, but I, I think there's still some success to be gained with using things like component in combination with Dyer mm. to uh, add and remove logging at runtime. Yeah, I remember when I looked at Dyer again recently because I had taken a quick glance when you first wrote about it. It must have been a year and a half ago. Does that sound right? Oh, at least, yeah. It's been yeah. a while. When I took a look at it, I did like the idea of you know the separation where you said, I've got my error handling policy essentially over here separate from my implementation and some of the possibilities under some scenarios of being able to you know combine those things or or dynamically um, assign them or you know some of that type of thing. There's really really interesting ideas that I haven't I haven't used Dyer yet, but uh, but it's cool it's cool to think about this stuff. I always love seeing people walk up and and find ways to pull stuff apart because that's really I think what you've done with Dyer and I think um, you can successfully claim to have done with Onyx too is to take a bigger idea and bust it down into smaller ones. And obviously that's a theme that we in Closure Land um, love to explore. It's our, it's our X factor, so to speak. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we, we really are lucky in having multiple X factors. That maybe is X factor prime, <laughs> I don't know, whatever, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Hard to weigh them, I suppose. But um, yeah, yeah. I don't, sorry, so that's just an observation. So obviously you are a, a busy, busy guy. You're, you've got these... Uh, these interesting libraries, and obviously Onyx is the, the 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 new the new hotness, and I'm very excited to see that uh, develop. I think it's already at a very interesting place, and you certainly helped me understand it more today. But I I guarantee that you will be doing so. You said you've your professional career spans like what you say some tiny number of years compared to. You're making me feel bad here, Mike. Oh I, yeah, I've been I guess for, after you know got a real job, quote unquote, graduating from college about a year and a half, and it's interesting working at, with the guys at Lono Cloud. All of them almost have at least a decade of experience on me in some three decades, and mm-hmm. it's like just staggering to work with them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, can, I can't necessarily speak for them, but I, I am lucky enough to speak uh, to uh, work with some people who are um, kind of on your end of the professional spectrum, whereas from my place in the middle, I'm like, I wish I was one-tenth as good as as you are right now and, and wonder where I would be. So so my whole point there is to say I'm, I'm sure that we will have to have you um, back on to talk about the next awesome thing that you do at some point. But we probably should start to draw down. Before we do that, uh, there is plenty of time. Um, if there's anything else that you're working on or that you wanted to make people aware of or or mention or um, whatever before we before we start to wind down. Hmm, I don't have anything too much up my sleeve. I've, I've revealed all with what's up next on the Onyx roadmap. Well, it's plenty. I mean, you're clearly you're clearly doing doing good work and doing lots of it. And 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 on top of having a new job at a at a place that must be um, quite challenging to come on and come up to speed with the team like you're working with. Very much. <laughs> okay. Well, cool. Then we will uh, we will we will ask you the question that. Uh, we end the show with, which is one of advice. Uh, this is advice that maybe you've received or maybe that you like to give or that you've heard other people re- receive. Just like, I like the notion of collecting advice. So I wonder if you could help me add to my collection. <laughs> I'd love to. This is advice that I wish I could have given myself maybe like four or five years ago. And yeah, I think I guess I'm speaking to younger programmers you know, around my area, is, is to not feel anxiety if you're exhibiting this outwardly sign of idleness. And what I mean by that is I spent his two to three years not really building much of anything. I spent a lot of time reading the literature, checking out what's going on in academia, and just piling up research papers and books and figuring out everything that I could do. And my GitHub account wasn't really very active. I wasn't you know, building projects or showing anything you know, really cool. 
And, and this is in a time where a lot of employers are saying, let me see your GitHub account. What are you doing? What are you active on? And you know, I don't necessarily think that it's a good thing to be targeting. Build yourself a really good foundation uh, in the literature. Learn what's out there. Don't reinvent the wheel. And, and go and learn from people who have been out there for a really long time. And you know, don't be afraid to copy and give credit, but do what other people are doing and see why they're successful. And don't, don't waste your time doing something that's just going to immediately plummet into the ground because you could have looked up and saw, oh, there's these three papers uh, showing that this is how you do this thing. And it works pretty well. And this could work for me as well. Yeah, that's really good. Where were you 20 years ago? For me, 20, you know, I could use that years. advice 20 years ago. Set, <laughs> was, set me straight. No, I, I was really, four. <laughs> well, okay. All right. Don't tell me that. You're making Playing in a sandbox. <laughs> no, you're just being cruel. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's really good advice. I think, uh, I think I've, I myself have been attempting to, I, I, I think one of the facets of what you're saying is, uh, if I can paraphrase poorly, it's avoid the predilection to, and I'm using air quotes here, action, right? This you know, if you're not, if your fingers aren't on the keyboard producing code, then you're not working. And I think that's something that I've, I grew, I have still, and that is not a good proclivity. And so I think your advice against, against that is very wise. Value hammock time, I guess we could summarize it as. (laughs) That's right. All right. Well, cool. I can't think of a better place to end it than there. So I will, uh, I will close the show by saying thank you so much for coming on today, Mike. It was really great. Oh no, it was super fun. I'm looking forward to getting this one out on the air. You know, hopefully a few more people here about Onyx get a chance to check it out. Um, you know, give you feedback or just use it for their own stuff because it is it is a really cool piece of kit, and I'm gonna continue to check it out myself and and hopefully get a chance to uh, use it in anger. But uh, but thank you so much for <laughs> for taking the time to come on today. We will uh, we'll close down there. Thank Mike again and uh, thank our listeners. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. Our guest today was Michael Drogalis on Twitter at Michael Drogalis. M-I-C-H-A-E-L-D-R-O-G-A-L-I-S. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento, audio production by Russ Olson. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Yeah.